<laughs> oh, and Carolyn is done. <clears throat> My mom will start asking us what we want for Christmas in May <clears throat> and does not stop. So welcome this morning. We're glad you're here. And uh, what a great opportunity we have as we dive into the Word of God this morning to really take time this morning to contemplate together the reality of why we do celebrate Christmas, why we celebrate the coming of the Messiah and the significance of that. And this morning, our passage is in Matthew chapter 4, if you would turn there, verses 12 to 17, and we see the beginning of Jesus' preaching ministry in Matthew chapter 4. So let's read that together, and then we'll pray and take a look at this this morning and ask that God would cause our hearts to be attentive to his word and what he would say to us. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 17. Let's read it together. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, speaking of Jesus. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah may be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death. On them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. God, I just pray that you would, this morning, open our hearts and our minds in a way that only you can do that, so that we hear your word and it changes us. Draw our affections towards you this morning for your incredible provision in Christ. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. So Jesus is now in Matthew chapter 4 beginning his preaching ministry. And it's so easy to just say those words and have those words come out as we are talking about the incarnation of Christ, that Jesus has come, that the light has come, and we see this narrative in Matthew where Jesus is now in a place where he's beginning his ministry, and I think we look at these stories and we reflect on these stories, and it's very easy to, to not recognize or not feel the impact and the significance of the reality of the fact that the Messiah has come, amen? Jesus is here. The light has entered the world, and now he's beginning to preach. And I, and I want to take a look at this narrative and this passage together with you this morning as we recognize the significance and the greatness of the fact that Jesus has come into the world and begin to look at a few things that we see here um, in Matthew chapter 4. Number one, I want to take a look at um, the timing of this. Jesus' timing to beginning his, his ministry and his preaching ministry. I want to look at the place that Jesus begins his ministry. 
And finally, this morning, I want to look at the message, the message that our Lord preached when he began his preaching ministry, and, and make some observations from these things, and, and just pray that God would impact our hearts. So as we see in chapter 4, verse 12, the timing of Jesus' beginning to his ministry. And, and let's read it again. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And we just heard from uh, Mike Becker not too long ago talking uh, about John the Baptist and, and looking at, at the impact of this, uh, of this man who had been prophesied about as well. And so the timing of Jesus' ministry is John gets arrested. Herod had come. Evil Herod, who was in charge of that region, had come, and he had arrested the righteous man, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist had been in the wilderness preaching. And as we see in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, what was he preaching? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And John's ministry ends at the beginning here, or I'm sorry, in verse 12 of chapter 4, where he's taken into custody. So John is taken into custody and he's arrested, and Jesus goes to Galilee and begins his preaching ministry. I think the significance of this timing is important. John, let's, let, let's talk about John the Baptist for a moment. John had been arrested and captured by Herod, and as we see in the narrative, John had spoken truth to Herod's face, and Herod didn't like it. And he's taken into custody and arrested. Herod arrests John, who had been prophesied about, John the Baptist had been prophesied about 700 years earlier by the prophet Isaiah and 500 years earlier by Malachi. Here is this man who was called, who God in his sovereignty had orchestrated that, that this man would prepare the way of the Messiah, that he would prepare the way of the Lord, had been prophesied about. Clearly, God had orchestrated the details of John the Baptist's life. And John, who had been prophesied about by Isaiah and by Malachi, comes onto the scene, begins to preach the, the, the word of repentance and the kingdom of God, and he is arrested and ends his ministry that lasted a total of 18 months. John's ministry, 18 months. I can't help but see in the picture of John the Baptist's life, this man who Jesus called the greatest Old Testament prophet, who had been prophesied about and who came. I can't help but see the urgency in the fleeting nature of his calling and think about the way that I view God's sovereignty, his planning, his orchestration, and his calling on our lives and ask myself, do I feel the same urgency? Do I recognize the same fleeting nature of my time here in God's plan? This man, the significance of him is remarkable. We see him in scripture. His ministry only lasted 18 months before he's taken into custody and arrested and eventually killed. And, and when he comes onto the scene, he, his, his obedience, his faithfulness, and his urgency to his message is remarkable. So we see John the Baptist, who's captured. 
who had been prophesied about and who prepares the way of the Lord. And, and, and there is application here that rises from this passage. God's in control, is he not? Listen, folks, God is in control. God has been prophesying about Jesus. We see in the prophets prophecy about John, and God brings about his purposes in the world. We see in this passage Jesus fulfilling prophecy from hundreds of years prior. We see John the Baptist's life as a fulfillment of prophecy from 700 and 500 years prior. And what we see here is is God is in control. Listen, when you don't understand what's going on in your life or what's happening around you, you as a Christian today can sit here and say, I know God understands, and he's in control. Amen? Some of us, even in this last week, we lost somebody who was a part of this church, and we see tragedy, and we see loss, and we see things happen, and we ask ourselves, why do these things happen? What is going on? And here's what I know. God controls our days. Amen? Not, not one of us can add a single second to our life or take it away. God is in control of our days. He is sovereign over our calling, and God's purposes will come to pass. Amen? Work while it's day because the night is coming. That's what the book of John says. Work while it's daytime because the night is coming. Folks, God has, has, has obviously, for, for many of you here, spoken the gospel of Christ into your life, and he's called you for his purposes. Let us together work while it's day, because night is coming. What a life John the Baptist had, but what a brief ministry. Brief but significant. As he prepared the way of the Lord exactly how he had been prophesied to. John indeed prepared the way of the Lord. And we see Jesus in this timing. Now that John is captured, Jesus steps up. And this is the timing now for him to begin his preaching ministry. And his time in some ways is not yet. So Jesus goes to Galilee as to avoid, it's kind of the backwoods. Jesus goes to Galilee as to avoid a, a early confrontation with the Pharisees. And in God's sovereignty, his timing is perfect. Jesus begins his preaching ministry, but he goes off and, and he goes to Galilee and we see Jesus step up and, and begin this ministry after John the Baptist is captured. You know, God, God will build his church, amen? God's purposes will be fulfilled. We see, you know, can you imagine if you were back in that day, you saw John the Baptist come onto the scene and you respond to this message and you think, this is the greatest preacher we've ever heard. And within 18 months, he gets taken out. And the temptation would be to feel like, what in the world is going on? Everything seems out of control. And we see Lincoln Duncan, when he was speaking of this moment, I, I want to reference it. He talked about how when Moses is gone, God provides Joshua. When John is taken out, God provides his own son. And, and there, is, there is definitely a reflection on the reality that God is in control, God is sovereign, God will build his church, and God will fulfill his purposes. The temptation for us sometimes is to think of our own significance or another man's significance of being more than it is, but God is in control, amen? There may have been reason for concern among those who were responding to the gospel as John the Baptist was preaching it when he's taken out, and, and 
God continues to be faithfully that in the moment John the Baptist is arrested, he provides his own son onto the scene. The incarnation is here, and now Jesus is prepared and ready to begin his ministry. God will build his church. God is sovereignly in control. God's purposes will be fulfilled. Amen? That's what we see in this passage. God's purpose being fulfilled as the light has entered the world. Jesus, in his timing, in God's perfect timing, steps up and begins his preaching ministry as John the, as John the Baptist's ministry ends. We saw this phenomenal attitude in the heart and in the life of John the Baptist. As Jesus began to come onto the scene before he was arrested, some of his followers came to him and said, John, there's more people being baptized by Jesus than by you. And, and there was this rise of, of pride in the, the rabbi that they were following. And John said these amazing words. If you remember them, what? I must decrease so that he would increase. And John had perspective on his purpose and his life and his ministry and calling and recognized he was just there to prepare the way of someone whose sandals he was unfit to even tie, someone who was so much greater than him. We planted, uh, began to start this work of God hopefully using a group of guys to, to see the gospel of Jesus Christ be proclaimed to this area in about two, the end, uh, May, June, I would say June, July of 2006, we began to seriously pray and into 2007 that God would, would do a work through us here as he's done in so many other churches and continues to do in this area. And the faithfulness of God in establishing Missio Church over that time period and bringing the right people together and the faithfulness of God years later to send us out from Missio Church to be a part of of his body and preaching the gospel to the northern suburbs and seeing Renovation Church come into being and to, to look out and to see his grace and giving us this place and putting us in this neighborhood among 10,000 people and to see all of your faces sitting here. Can I tell you that as Mike and Bernie and me and Jordan and Jim and some other people sat in the living room, my parents and the Steves and others, and we prayed and thought, what would God do to see what God has done has, has caused no pride to rise in us, but to look around and say, God is in control and he is going to fulfill his purposes and build his church. God is faithful. He will do his work, whether it's through us or somebody else. There may come a day when God has not called me to be a part of an eldership team in this church, but others will be here. Preaching the gospel, ministering the word. There may come a day when, when any of us could be called to go home or to go somewhere else or to do something else, but God will fulfill his purposes through his people. He will minister the gospel of Jesus Christ so that those who are given the eyes to see will see and repent. Amen? Not about us. Never set out to build a name other than the name of Jesus that he would be glorified. Amen? We see that reflected in John the Baptist's life, in his ministry. He indeed prepared the way of the Lord, and God's purposes are being 
accomplished as we see it reflected. And we see that God is in control. And we only serve his purposes as he deems necessary. Even when we don't understand, we know God's at work and he understands. And there is an appointed time for everything. Amen? There is an appointed time for everything. I got to tell you, looking back on my life, as you now, you know, they say, the old saying is hindsight is twenty twenty, And as I sit and just introspectively reflect on my own life and just look back on it, I see a, a number of things. Number one, God is sovereign, amen? Number two, he's faithful. And number three, he has richly provided. His hand has been at work doing things the way he had ordained them to be done, working in my life in every detail. Looking back on that, I see God is in control. And I hope as you reflect this morning, you see the same thing. And the greater message here is that if nothing else, Jesus Christ's entrance into the world in the beginning of his ministry tells us that God is at work and has provided not just our greatest need, but for every need. Amen? As we think about the advent, as we think about the incarnation, as we think about Christ, as we look at the Old Testament as it's pointed to him and our massive problem of sin, we see in this God's provision and fulfillment of prophecy, the darkness was there and God has provided the light in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's talk about the place. Jesus here in verse 13, goes to a particular place that was prophesied about. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Verse 14, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region, in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. What do we see here? We see the light has come. We see the light has come to a particular place that God has ordained, that God had prophesied about. And we see Jesus not going to his home of Nazareth. And I think some people opine that maybe Jesus didn't go to Nazareth because... You know, there's no honor for a prophet in his own home. But the reality is he went to Capernaum and he was rejected there as well. The light of God has come. He was rejected. Duncan says it this way. The, great, the greatest spiritual light is no guarantee of spiritual sight. The light of the world came to this place, the Galilee of the Gentiles, the backwoods of the Gentiles, not to the political or the economic or the social center of this region. He didn't go to Jerusalem. He went to the poor. He went to the powerless. He went to the, to the uneducated. God, God sent him to a particular place. And we see that, that not even the greatest light being among these people guarantees the greatest sight. Unless God lifts the scales off our eyes, unless the gift of God comes to us and enables us to see, we're not going to see. Amen? 
God in his sovereignty gives us the gift of sight, that we would recognize the most amazing gift, that the light has come into the world and into darkness. And Jesus came to a particular place, a place that had rejected him. He came to a particular place that had been prophesied about. But he came to a particular place that God had great purpose in. I mean, we see some very practical reasons that Jesus is in Capernaum. First of all, it's, uh, it's within foot distance of all the western lands for him to take the gospel, for him to take the message of repent for the kingdom of God is at hand far beyond where John the Baptist had taken it. Foot traffic into the western lands, it's got trans-Jordan um, uh, ability across the Jordan by boat to go to the other side of the Jordan and continue the ministry. Capernaum becomes the base of Jesus' ministry, and we see it in 2 Kings 17.33, that this would happen. And, and so Jesus here is in Capernaum, and what do we see? We see Matthew, the tax collector's office is there. In Matthew chapter 9, we see about that, and we see that Jesus calls many of his disciples right in this place. James, John, Matthew. An unlikely place that Jesus goes to. But God had ordained every detail of, of this place for Jesus, the light of the world, the Messiah, to begin his ministry and to begin to preach. The ability to preach it to the region and to call the men into, into service as, as the apostles that God had ordained to be called, Matthew and Peter and James and John, he calls right from Capernaum. We see the beginning of Jesus' ministry, but in it we see the sovereignty of God, the hand of God, the fact that he is orchestrating every detail of this narrative. Ladies, folks, listen. God is orchestrating every detail of your life as well. God's hand is in your life, and he is orchestrating in his sovereignty every detail of your life. And what he's called us to is faithful submission and recognition to the fact that he's in control. Amen? I hope that this brings comfort to you this morning. As some of you are sitting here thinking of things and scenarios and subjective feelings and situations in your life that seem out of control that you don't understand. Christian, you can come to church on Sunday morning, worship the sovereign God of heaven, and reflect in your soul that even if you don't know, God knows. And he is in control. And you can trust him. Amen? can trust him. He comes to a place. I love that he goes to Capernaum. There's something about the nature of God that he brings about the greatest event in the history of the world in some backwoods place where nobody who's important lives. Right? It's like that thing in us because we have the nature of God in us that loves like the 1980 U.S. hockey team, right? I mean, it's like these dudes from Boston and Minnesota that were a bunch of college kids who were absolutely going to get creamed by the Soviets, and they come out of nowhere and win that game. Some of you, as I'm sitting here, remember the game, and some of you, as I'm sitting here, saw the movie with Kurt Russell. It doesn't matter. <laughs> It's still just as cool. 
Jesus born in a manger, right? In a barn. He sends and begins his ministry and his preaching in Capernaum. I mean, God just has a way of working like, like we wouldn't expect. Like we don't think he should, but he knows what he's doing. Jesus goes to Capernaum. He came to the poor, uneducated, and his plan encompasses every detail. I think it's amazing to reflect in this passage on the place that God sent Jesus to begin his ministry. Jesus' message. Let's look at Jesus' message. If you look in Matthew 3, 2, John the Baptist preached, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, in Matthew chapter 4, in verse 17, says this. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying what? Repent, for the kingdom of God, I'm sorry, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, when Jesus says, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, there's a little bit of a different weightiness and significance to those words coming out of his mouth than they were for John. Because Jesus, the Messiah, who had come to earth, was saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven has a little bit of a different deal when Jesus preaching it because his very presence is the confirmation that it's true. Jesus is there. He's preaching the kingdom of heaven. That the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That God's rule, God's reign, God's kingdom is at hand. And Jesus himself, the presence of God, the reflection of God, the, 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 the reason we know what God is like and who he is, the accurate depiction and reflection of God himself has come to earth as God in Christ is incarnate. He comes into our situation, into our world, and he's now at a place where his ministry begins. And the very Messiah himself says the kingdom of God is at hand. And his presence is an absolute confirmation of that truth. The kingdom of God is at hand. What a remarkable thing for him to preach those words. The kingdom of God is at hand. One of probably the most unpopular messages today, even in evangelicalism, is repentance. If you don't like the message of repentance, you don't like the message right from Jesus' own words. If we reject the message of repentance, we reject the message of Christ. Oh, but repentance doesn't sound nice. God's sovereign, he loves us, he forgives us of everything. Why do we have to repent? What do you mean repentance? Why do I have to do anything? I don't want to feel bad about myself. I want to feel bad about who I am. I don't want to feel bad about the things that I do that are wrong. And it's not about feeling bad at all, but the idea that we would come to a place of recognizing the depth of our own sin and come to a place of repentance is at the heart. It's the first word out of Jesus' mouth when he begins to preach. Repent. It's at the heart of what his message is and what he's calling us to do. We've been walking through Romans, and, and who doesn't remember the first half a dozen messages 
depicting to us the depth of our own sin and our great need. Amen? Because at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a recognition by us of human beings of the fact that we need a Savior. That we are flawed, that we are sinful, that we are at fault. Whoa. We mean we're at fault. Nobody's at fault anymore, right? Nobody's at fault in our culture. Who I am is my identity. Don't, don't bother me with right and wrong. It's who I am. We live in a day and an age of radical individualism where you can never question what someone does because what they do cuts right to the heart of who they are. Everything I do is my identity and depicts who I am as a person. And for you to question my actions and my behavior is to question me as a human being. And how could you ever do that? At the heart of the sinfulness of our culture is the pride of radical identity and individualism. We could never come to a place of repentance if nothing we do could ever be wrong because it's who we are. What a lie. What a deceit perpetrated on our entire culture. We can never come to the beginning point of the recognition of our need for Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ if we can never come to a place where we admit we're wrong. And Jesus' first word that cuts right to the heart of, of every person today in our day and age, it's as relevant today as ever, is repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven. Is at hand. What is repentance? As we look at this, what is repentance? It's a work of God in our hearts. Amen? First, let's recognize our ability to repent in the same way as our ability to see the light comes as a gift from God. That he works in our hearts and enables us to recognize our need for him and our sinfulness. So it's a, it's a work of God in our heart. And then as God begins to work in our heart, the, the word repentance means not just feeling bad, but listen, the word, repentant me, the word repentance means a turning, a turning, turning from sin and turning to God. It, there's some action to it, turning from sin and turning to God, and then listen, apprehending or taking God's mercy, right? God is the only one who can deal with our sin. God in his amazing sovereignty and his love for us judged sin in Christ and as we repent for our sin and recognize our sinfulness and turn to God, we embrace his mercy, amen? He's merciful and just to forgive us of our sins as we turn and repent. You know, it's, it's so much more than just feeling sorry for sin. It's so much more than just feeling sorry for the consequences of our sin. It's so much more than just feeling sorry for self-inflicted wounds on our own life, as in our sinfulness we ruin our life. It's so much more than feeling sorry for ruining someone else's life as we see the impact on others as a result of our own sin. 
the repentant person who responds to this message. The repentant person says something that no one says today. I'm the problem. It's my fault. It's not because of my circumstances. It's not because I had parents that were a particular way. It's not because I was brought up here. It's not because of my genetics. It's not because of the subjective things that surround me. It's me. I'm the problem. It's my fault. It's my sin. We didn't do a lot of biblical names in our family. Mostly because my brother-in-law, Bobby, stole them all. <clears throat> he had seven children, and just we ran out of names in the Bible that anyone could name someone. <clears throat> Not only did he use it for the first names, he used it for the middle names. <clears throat> so we were out. But we named, uh, we named my youngest son Nathan. And when I see a picture of repentance, I always think of this story in, in Samuel where the prophet Nathan goes to David. And, and you see this, these two lives in David and in Saul that are so different. You see Saul who is commanded by God to kill everybody and to not take any plunder from the battle and he saves the king as a trophy and they take the plunder and he disobeys God and the prophet Samuel comes to Saul and, and he says, he says, hey, you blew it, man. You, you totally disobeyed God. And Saul's heart reaction to, to, uh, to the prophet Samuel was, all right, listen, just make me look good in front of the people when we bring King Agag up in front and, and then I'll deal with the fact that I was disobedient later. And we see God's response through the prophet Samuel is dramatic, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. He takes, as they go in front of the people and Saul's trying to look good, Samuel takes his sword and the Bible says, hews Agag to pieces. Can you imagine that? It's like gladiator style. He just chops the dude up in front of everybody. And the, and the kingdom is taken from, from Saul. And he's, he's depicted in scripture as a, as a man who was prideful and selfish and sinful and God rejected him as king we see David he you know Saul took some plunder kept the king alive and disobeyed God David sees a woman on a roof and thinks huh he had stayed back and didn't go to battle with the rest of his army like he should have he's alone idle hands doing nothing hanging out on the roof and he sees a beautiful woman, and he says, even though that's not mine, I want that. He takes Bathsheba, commits adultery, and sends her husband to the front line to be killed. Commits adultery and murder. Man after God's own heart? Why? God speaks to the prophet Nathan. He says, I want you to go to David and tell him a story about a man who had all the sheep he could ever want. He goes to another man who had, had this little lamb that he had raised from birth. It was the only one that he had. 
and he loved it, and it was his, and he kept it. And the man with all the sheep and lambs he could ever want goes to that man and takes his lamb and kills it for his meal. And Nathan goes to David and communicates that story. And David stands up from the throne and says, Who is this man? I'll kill him. Who's the guy that did this? And Nathan sticks his finger in David's face and he says, It's you. What did David do? Fell to his knees and he said, God, I have sinned and I've sinned against you alone. What a difference in heart. David demonstrated a heart of repentance. God, I've sinned. I own it. It was me. It was my fault. I did it. And I've sinned against you alone. And in my sinfulness and in my guilt and in my inability to do what I'm supposed to do, I'm throwing my life on your altar of mercy and saying, God, I need you to forgive me because I'm incapable of being okay. I'm the one who sinned. And God declares, although David experienced the physical consequences of his sin, God had mercy on David and says, he's a man after my own heart. And folks, that's what God is calling us to, is Jesus cries out, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's time for us to own our sin and fall to our knees and say, God, I've sinned. It's my fault, and I need you. I need your mercy, and embrace his mercy, because the light of the world has come and provided a way. Amen? Provided a way for God in his judgment on Christ can have mercy on you. And he's calling you to own your sin, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. Jesus has made a way. Amen? Again, reflecting on some of Duncan's, Lincoln Duncan's thoughts on repentance, looked at some of what he said about repentance. He tells a story that I want to steal. He tells a story about a farmer. And, and this farmer was known for having a violent, violent temper. And he was treacherous. He was terrible, abusive to his farmhands. His family would hide from him. His children were scared of him. And he would go to his farmhands and he would, he, if they made a mistake, he would beat them. He would abuse them. He would scream at them. Just a violent, violent temper this farmer had. And a man had come to town and was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the farmer went and listened to the gospel and through repentant tears accepted Christ, responded to the gospel, repented for his sins. Weeks later, the farmer was out in the field. And while he was out in the field, one of his farmhands made a terrible mistake and cost the life of one of the animals. And the farmer flipped. And he screamed and he hit and he was abusive and he was violent towards the farmhand again. And the farmer, broken and crying, went back to the house, fell on his face in the kitchen in front of his wife, and began to weep. And he said, honey, I haven't changed a bit. God hasn't done a work at me, and I haven't changed. I am still a violent, violent, angry man. And his wife looked at him and said, Yes, you have. Because there was never a day prior to Christ in your life that you would have come into this kitchen 
and felt the weight of your sin and wept. You may not be totally fixed. I know I'm not. You may still screw up and fail and fall and keep recurring into the same stuff over and over again. But the question you have to ask yourself this morning, that I have to ask myself this morning, is do I weep over my sin? Do do I come to a place and say, I did it again, oh Lord, I need your mercy. I need to repent afresh this morning for blowing it again. Because the very presence of that conviction in your life as you're broken over your own sin, is, is a sign that the, that the God who loves you is at work in your heart. He's turning your heart. And, and repentance is there where you feel and sense the weight of your sin and say, God, listen, God, turn me and I'll be turned. My first uh, pastor that I grew up in, in, in and worked for used to say this all the time in, in, in his communication about repentance as he tells the story of his life. There came a moment where he laid his head in his wife's lap and he just prayed this prayer, God, turn me and I'll be turned. Are you at that place? Are you at that place where you, through, through, through weeping, through brokenness, God, turn me and I'll be turned. I need you. I need your mercy. That's the heart of repentance that God is calling us to. Amen? Turn me, and I'll be turned. J.C. Ryle says, Repentance is the thorough change of a man's natural heart on the subject of sin. God thoroughly changing the natural man's heart, or man's natural heart, on the subject of sin. The unrepentant man does not care of his own sin. The unrepentant man has no concern for his own sin. The unrepentant man does not feel a searing of the conscience, a check in the spirit, any issue with his own sin. But as we come to a place where our hearts are changed and we respond as David responded or as the farmer responded, God, I'm broken, I'm sinful, I need your mercy. Turn me and I'll be turned. We see repentance occur in the work of God in our own hearts as we embrace together his incredible mercy because God's provided, amen? The light of the world has come. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus has received the judgment for our sin and is calling us to repentance in reliance on his mercy. Refuge from your sin is found in the refuge of a God who will forgive at the cost of his own son. There's no sin you can defend yourself from. You can obscure it. You can hide it so other men don't see. But God has judged it in Christ so he can have mercy on us. You can't hide it from him. And why would you? He knows anyway. And he wants to provide mercy. And he's provided mercy in Christ. Those of you who feel guilt and condemnation this morning, be free in the fact that God has forgiven and provided a way in Jesus Christ. As we've said before, who could accuse you? Who could level a charge against you? What court would they bring it to? 
God is the ultimate judge. Throw yourself at his feet, at the foot of the cross, for his mercy. For he has provided a way. Amen? So let's pray this morning that God would open our eyes to this great light that has come into the world. And that he would open our hearts to repentance and turning and relying on Christ, relying on God for his mercy. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you this morning. Many of us in different places, but we come this morning recognizing, most importantly, in our need for you. We need you. We need you to open our eyes. We need you to open our hearts. We need you to help us recognize the depth of our own sin. And for those of us that do, you need, we need you for your mercy. We, we ask you for repentance. For, we ask you for mercy. We ask you for grace. And we thank you that you have provided it in Jesus. That the light of the world has come into darkness and you've made a way. We celebrate that in this season, Jesus, above all else. That you've come. You've made a way. Help us to see it this morning. Help us to worship you for it. Not just in this place, but with our lives. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.